0: Well, for those of you who have seen Forrest Gump, you know that Forrest is the perpetual and sometimes accidental hero throughout the movie. He's a hero early in the movie because he scores touchdowns while going to college at the University of Alabama with the great Bear Bryant. He's a hero for his excellence at ping pong against the Chinese during our peace talks in the 70s. He's a hero for running across the country several times and inspiring others to do the same. And the scene we just watched, he's a hero for carrying his fellow soldiers out of the jungle and out of harm's way. But this last heroic achievement is different from the others that I mentioned. What's the difference? You know? In this last clip, he actually saves someone. Not just someone, he saves several people. And what do I mean by save? Well... He rescues them from danger in what turns out to be imminent death by firebombing because you heard Lieutenant Dan say he had just called in an airstrike. And anybody left in the region, if you watched as the movie continues, would be consumed in the fire. In this last act, Forrest Gump isn't just a hero, he is a savior. And this morning we are continuing our message series, Summer in the Sun, where we are asking the question, who is Jesus and why does it matter? In previous weeks, we talked about Jesus as a mediator, Jesus as a prophet, Jesus as Lord, amongst other characteristics. And today, we're focusing on Jesus as Savior, which may be the most popular title or description that Jesus gets these days. Now, the initial question that we have What exactly is a Savior? We might think we know that, but let's delve in just so we we all understand and have the same framework to work from. A Savior is a person who saves something or someone from danger or destruction. That's the first definition. The second definition connects Savior to Christianity. In Christianity, it is deliverance by God from the penalty of power and sin. In most dictionaries, it's a generic definition, and then quickly, a Christian-associated definition is offered. It's so closely tied to the Christian faith. Some synonyms for Savior are deliverer, redeemer, rescuer. That's what we saw Forrest doing, rescuing. As I was doing this, I had a thought. I wanted to ask you to to think with me for a moment. When you think of the word Savior, who do you think of? Now, for most of us in this room, obviously, we think of Savior. We get some picture image of Jesus. Whatever, is it on a cross, is it him talking to children? We see that's the general image for Christians and for folks who have been taught and raised or grown in the Christian faith. But apart from Jesus, when you think of Savior, who else comes to mind? Anyone? I don't know, maybe it's a parent or a sibling who came to your rescue when you were young and in physical danger or trouble. Some of you know someone who was trapped in addiction, it might have been you, might have been someone you care deeply about, or some other dangerous cycle, and had a friend or family member not been present to help or intercede in some facet, they might not, or you might not be here today. Those are both pertinent examples of a Savior. As you know, we Zilkis have eight children, 17 to age two and our family loves to swim. I promise you, we're diligent, vigilant parents, always with our eyes open. But I have two, Julie has two, and there's still four kids left over, if each kid gets an eye. (laughs) And several times over the years, one of our young children has either jumped or fallen into the water and not been able to swim. Thankfully, somebody heard or somebody saw and noticed And we were able to jump in and rescue them and get them to safety. There was another time, about four years ago, we were vacationing up in New England. We're visiting the big cities and we're downtown Boston hiking the Freedom Trail in Boston. If you've been to Boston, you know that the Freedom Trail is a series of old buildings that have been preserved downtown with skyscrapers all around. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. In fact, I think we were right on this corner over here about to cross over to this building and they were getting the, the crew together and we only had nine at the time. Vivian had not yet been born. And I'm doing my count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You know, like I would do to make sure I have all of them. And then one of our kids just decides to venture out and starts walking out into the road. Well, there was a bus coming and I jumped out and grabbed that child and pulled them back as the bus went by. I think it could have been really bad had I not. In that instance, I was a savior. Well, as you can expect here at church on Sunday morning, someone else is a savior, God. In fact, if you read the Bible and you know about the history of Israel and the history of God and his people, time and again, God is a savior to people, rescuing them from physical harm. God saved Israel, kind of the beginning moment of the nation of Israel as it is today. They were slaves in Egypt under terrible rule and bondage and God saved them, he delivered them out from Egypt through Moses centuries later there was a young zealous boy named David who would be a future king who when the giant Goliath got up in front of the army of Israel said is anyone going to stand against me he stood up and said I will and while he threw some stones that happened to hit Goliath in the head and kill him there was miraculous intervention on his part, and God saved what would have been a terrible, horrible demise of young David had he ventured alone. Around 700 BC, God miraculously saved Jerusalem, the city, from the invading Assyrian army. I don't know if you know this, but Israel had kind of broken into two, two separate countries. And the terrible Assyrian army uh, had come through and conquered the north and just wiped it out. Very little, if any, remained of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem and the southern kingdom had endured, but Assyria had come down, and they were literally at the gates, at the doorstep, about to conquer Jerusalem. And one night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed. The Bible records it as God sent an angel of death. The Syrian army wakes up in the morning. They've lost that many people. They retreat. Go back north. And Jerusalem saved. Sometime later, Babylon actually comes in and does capture Jerusalem, and they take captives. And three young men, if you might have heard their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Abednego, they were thrown into a, a, a furnace to be burned alive because they wouldn't worship a false god. And if you read the story in Daniel, you find out that a fourth person enters the fire to save them from doom. Decades later, their friend Daniel, who's still alive and enduring now under the Persian Empire, is told that he has to stop praying to God and he must now only pray to the Persian false gods and their their ruler. And Daniel won't. And so he's thrown into a lion's den with ravenous, hungry lions. And he is saved that day because no harm comes to him. There are many examples of history from history recorded in the Bible where God was a savior. He was a savior for the individual, he was a savior for groups of people, and he was savior for the entire nation. Where does this word savior come from? What's the background? What's the specifics about it? Well, it, the Hebrew word for savior that's most commonly used is the word yasa. 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 This word and its derivatives, that means its various forms, it's a verb it's a, with the noun and all the, the derivatives and then the tenses and everything, collectively are found over 350 times in the Old Testament. That's how often it's used. Salvation, saving, Savior, 350 times in the Old Testament. And then there's a spiritual aspect of this word yasa that we find in Psalm 51, Now, if you don't know, Psalm 51 is a psalm written by this David, who the Lord saved before Goliath and later made king, but as he's king, he makes some terrible mistakes, does some evil, wicked things, murder, adultery, and yet he repents. He repents and comes before the Lord and said, I was wrong. And if you want to read a great psalm about repenting and addressing the sins and the wrongs, you will not find a better prayer or psalm to read than Psalm 51. And as he gets to the end of the psalm in verse 12, David says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, yasa, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness you who are God, my Savior, David, proclaiming God. A thousand years before Jesus came on the scene, God was a Savior. Now there's two important virtues here that I want to highlight as we move through, and they, they're referenced here, and they'll be referenced in the next verse that we look at. The first is love. It is the love of God that compels him to save. It is God's love and compassion It is your love and compassion. It is my love for my children that I pulled them back. That whatever I'm wearing or whatever's in my pockets, I jump in. It is love that leads us and compels us, that drives us to rescue, to deliver, to save. But there's a second characteristic here, and David specifically mentions that. It's righteousness. And what is righteousness? Righteousness means goodness. Another term that's used sometimes with that is holiness but it's correctness. The right thing to do, the good thing to do when someone is in trouble is to rescue them. It's just the nature of being good. It's the nature of being holy, righteous. And this love and righteousness, this goodness, this compassion, and this holiness work together in this Savior and in our understanding of what Savior means. There's several other terms that have salvific characteristics. Somebody was thankful I gave him a new word during first service, so I thought I'd emphasize that. The Old Testament in its poetry and in its prose uses terms like horn and rock and shield to describe things that provide protection and safety. They're savior, yasa-oriented items and things. There's actually even a name in the Old Testament that comes from Yasa. Does anybody know what the name of the Old Testament is? Joshua. The Hebrew name Joshua comes from Yasa. Joshua actually means Yahweh saves. We see Joshua and we think, oh, that's a nice kid next door, or, I have an uncle named Joshua, or it's a great name, or whatever. If you're Hebrew and you see somebody named Joshua, immediately it comes to mind, Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. As we move to the New Testament, Yasa has a correlating word. That's the most common word in the Greek. Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. And the Greek word for salvation or Savior most commonly uses sodzo. Sodzo. Now it has various derivatives and, and tenses and forms if you understand how the language works. In fact, Peter is out on the boat with the the disciples in the Gospels and Jesus has left them to pray and then he decides to go out to meet them. He does it in a weird way. What does Jesus do to go meet the disciples? He decides to do it via the water. And so he's strutting out on the water and Peter sees Jesus and he says, Lord, is that you? If, if, If it is you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, Come. So Peter hops up, hops out of the boat, and he starts walking on the water too. And if you look at Matthew chapter 14, verse 30, as he initially started very energetically, enthusiastically, and fervently, it says here, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I'm drowning. I'm about to die. Save me. Sozo. What's the term? Probably wouldn't surprise you to know that the name Jesus is a derivative of Joshua. Joshua in Hebrew as the Greeks came in and the Hellenistic impact in the area uh, from the, the Greeks and then the Romans maintaining Greek culture, adding their own spice to it. The name Jesus essentially means the same thing as Joshua. And we see this in Matthew 1 Matthew Mary's pregnant. Joseph finds out. He's about to ditch Mary and try to make it as least trouble as it, it's it can be and an angel comes to him and amongst other things besides stay with Mary, you're supposed to be her husband. He says this. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means what? Yahweh saves. Is there ever a more appropriate name for Jesus than Jesus? Joshua was Yahweh saves, and people saw Joshua and thought, oh, God saves. People see Jesus, and they think, Jesus saves. Not a coincidence. The saving power of God, the saving nature of God, the saving desire of God, is seen throughout all of scripture. But it's not just physical peril that we find ourselves in. It's not just armies at their city gates or kids falling in water or whatever perilous thing we might find ourselves in that we need saving from. The whole Bible and especially the New Testament emphasizes on a different type of danger and a different type of peril. And that's the danger and peril from sin. Now, this is hard. We're very self assured, self confident. I give, I serve, I give my time. Uh, I support all these causes. I'm really trying not to be like the person next to me. I mean, all these human efforts, which are noble, but none of them change the mixture inherent within each of us. And that mixture is this. It says in Romans 3.23, Paul. Romans, we just studied uh, for a couple years. You can find the sermons online if you want to delve deeper. But in Romans 3.23, Paul says this. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you and I today, we're in danger. As far as we know, we're not in physical danger unless the roof were to crash in or a lightning were to strike in a fire. I mean, we could come up with imaginative physical dangers, but we are in spiritual danger because of the reality of sin in our life. Okay, Jeremy, we sin, well, what's the problem with that? Well, later in the book of Romans, Romans 6.23, Paul writes this, for the wages of sin, what you earn from your sin, what you deserve, what you are credited because of your sin, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Not physical death. Because we know people who do wrong, who do evil, who seem to get away with it, sometimes they sure have a lot of fun doing it. It's not fair. Why do they get away with it? It shouldn't be that way. It's not the physical that we should be concerned with. It's the spiritual. It's our soul. Now this is hard, as I said, for us to... To receive and to understand, because we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be in need. We don't want to be desperate. But the gospel is part and parcel with the people, us, upon learning and seeing and understanding the truth of God towards us, coming to a point and realizing, I'm in trouble. I need to be rescued. I am as prideful and self-assured as anyone in this room. And coming to that point is not easy. So we're on day 14 of our trip, probably. I think it was 14. On day 12, we had gone to Yellowstone and Oregon and up to Washington. On day 12, we put Julie and our youngest, Vivian, two years old, on a plane to go home. We did this five years ago. It worked well. Mama liked to come along and hang out. Mama also liked a couple of days of peace and quiet before the train arrived back at the house. So we're figuring out a little wisdom in how we manage the, uh, the needs of the family and the needs of, uh, of the parents. And so the whole time we've been on this trip, there is this carrier that you put kids in. Some of you have them. You've seen them. And, uh, and I've, I've used it. Bought it before our last trip five years ago, and at that time Elijah was one, two years old, and he would go in there. If you've been on the Facebook page or wherever you've seen, the back when you had the curly blonde hair and Arches National Park in the background, some great pictures, and that's the pack. And as opposed to a backpack, uh, it's been called because it's little kids saying it. They don't say backpack. They say pack pack. Isn't that cute? And so Papa wears a pack pack, and kids get to ride in the pack pack. So I've been tooling around, and Julie's gone now, and Vivian's gone now, and Abigail, who's now five, and she's no little bitty thing, don't tell her I said that, I think that, don't think that was like an insult to her, she's just getting bigger, Um, she has been eyeing that pack pack the whole trip, and now that Vivian's gone, there's going to be a new resident on Papa's back. All that to say, we arrive at Glacier National Park and there's all these wonderfully mapped out trails and we could have gone on any of them, but we're staying with folks who live in the area we got hooked up with, which is wonderful, and I say, hey, there's a trail that's kind of off trail, there's no map for it, but see that peak up there? Go to the Mount Oberlin Peak picture. We can hike up that. Now, we didn't, that's the face of it. That's not the part we hiked up. There's a backside of it. But I'm looking at it like, oh, um... Don't you see I have a five-year-old with me? And they're like, oh, I think a five-year-old. Didn't that family that come last year, didn't their five-year-old make it up? Yeah, I think you'll be fine. You'll love it. It's great. It's more of a scramble than a hike. Like, sometimes there's no trail. You're just climbing up kind of a mountainside, hands over feet on rocks. And there were two experienced folks, both the the, uh, guy and the girl who were with us in their 20s, and they were capable climbers. So we start heading off. Next picture. Early on, we stop and look around, and there's Jonathan looking down at the valley below that we had just hiked up, amazing, Glacier National Park, a beautiful park, by the way, recommended if you ever get the chance. And as we go a little bit further, um, all of a sudden I hear from Abigail, Papa, I'm tired. Can you carry me? I've been waiting for this, and I'm like, okay, all right, let's put her in the pack. So we throw Abigail in the pack, and there she is. Happy as can be. There's a problem though. So, five years ago when I was carrying Elijah in the pack, he was one, two years old. That's significantly lighter than five years old. And I had smart and prepared myself. I put Elijah in the pack and I started hiking around the neighborhood and I'd find some hills and I'd just prepare myself, get ready to go. We're at 500 feet above sea level. Mount Oberlin's 8,000 feet above sea level. Now, I'd been hiking at some altitude up to this point, but I'd had a 20 pound girl, uh, 15 to 20-pound girl, not a 45-pound girl, in my pack. And I'd been hiking hiking altitude, we'd been hiking flat. We had never scrambled up the side of a mountain. And I'm really not thinking this. And so between the pack and uh, Abigail and the gallon of water in there, I throw this pack on, I've got 70 pounds on my back. Now, the last time I carried 70 pounds, I was wearing green... I wasn't 44 years old, and I said, ooh, a lot. Okay? But you know, Jeremy, I just, okay, there's the peak. I got the pack. Just put my head down. And I just start going. And I start going. And this is where I went. I mean, that's the altitude. I'm like, I'm taking the picture flat and it just goes up. So I don't know, two, three, four hundred yards, just up, 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 up. Right here. You see us going up, and we then we came up that ridge over there. And I'm just going, going, going. And about five, ten minutes into this hike, all of a sudden. I get to this especially steep part, and I feel my legs getting wobbly. I'm like, whoa. So I, sit, I do the unthinkable. I'm like, I think I need to take a break. I'm the weak link. Isn't that wonderful? So I sit down. I take Abigail off. And all of a sudden, just I don't feel good. I feel nauseous. I'm just sitting there. I'm drinking. I'm I'm at 8,000 feet, I'm carrying 70 pounds, I didn't practice, I mean, it just, this is a recipe for disaster, and disaster came. About 10 minutes, everyone's kind of waiting on me, I get up, and I go to hike the next segment without Abigail, and I get up that next section of climb, but even then, I get up there, and all of a sudden, I feel bad again, I sit down, and then it happens, darkness coming in from the sides. Now, I didn't lose consciousness, and, but people were talking to me, I wasn't answering, I was looking straight ahead saying, don't pass out. I don't care what you're telling me. In the meantime, they're putting a pack behind me. They're kind of laying me down. I'm maintaining it, but I'm, I'm close. About 10 minutes, drinking water, passed. I got up. I look over, and my kids are like, oh. They're flabbergasted. And I realized something they've never seen their papa in a weakened and fragile position so i had multiple feelings at that moment i had pride saying i don't want them to see me weak and that the grace of god was there in that moment and said this is a gift to them that they can see that even their father has his limits and is dependent and weak at times by the way we made it up the hill i slowly recovered as we went up next picture I slowly recovered as we went up and we had a great memory on top of that hill. Why do I tell you this story? Because some of you right now aren't going to relent. You're not going to acknowledge what deep down in your heart you probably know is true. That your legs are shaking, your spiritual legs. And you're not going to make it up the hill. Heaven forbid you pass out and you fall off a cliff and you die. That's legitimate. what could have happened with a girl on my back. Think, think about that. Had I not stopped and humbled myself and sat down. We need a Savior. And you may have never articulated it like that. You may have never actually said, I am desperate and I am weak spiritually. I cannot do this. I cannot please and accomplish, God, what you call and desire and command demand of us to accomplish I need a savior. There's some good news. In John 3.16, we read that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You and I are in need. Can't make it. world's too much. Our sins, anger, hate, bitterness, Conviction, condemnation, God made a way. He gave his son, Jesus. In Acts 16, 31, Paul, talking to a, a Gentile jailer who had just lost his prisoners because Paul and Silas were uh, leaders in an early church, were in a jail, and they were singing praises, an earthquake happened, and he ran in and saw the, the jail open. If, if a jailman, jailer loses his prisoners, he might as well kill himself because they will kill him. But the prisoner stayed, and he was amazed, why would you stay? And they said and because the spiritual well-being of the jailer was more important than their physical well-being of being in jail, they said this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And in Romans 10, 9 and 10, more specifically, what exactly happens? What am I talking about? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I don't know why you're at Rooftop. We love that you're here. We're so grateful that you've come and made us part of your life, and for those that have gotten more involved, have made us part of your family. Maybe you this God... Thing or God himself is really cool and interesting and meaningful and you like being around other people who share that, that, that interest. Maybe you've encountered some Christians who seem to be really caring people in spite of their shortcomings and I like to hang around with folks and if this church, this God thing is part of the deal, then I'll take that. Maybe this is just part of what you do to feel good about yourself and to, to, to do more good than bad by the end of the day when you put your head at night and, and this gets you on the good side going to orient you for the rest of the week so you can do the same each night of the week you go to bed. But if you're here for any other reason than to acknowledge that you need a Savior, you're missing something. And what better morning than to realize for the first time, in spite of your religious background or all the good things that you've done or whatever, that your life is empty and missing has a glaring need, and that is a God who has died for your sins and will forgive you and will give you new life in him. That's Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. And so I want to pray. I Pray right now. If you've never prayed that prayer, if you've never said, God, Jesus, be my Savior, I want to invite you in your heart to, to, to pray these words. And if you have prayed those words and you've entered into a relationship with Jesus previously, but that that line has grown cold, that relationship is distant, you and Jesus are not tracking like you used to, some stuff has happened, I invite you to pray again. invite him to be your Savior again. Not that you lost your salvation, but he saves us not one time, but he saves us each day for every day that we might know him intimately every day until that glorious day when he says, welcome home, good and faithful servant. So let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and your truth and for Jesus. And if there are folks here right now who need and want to pray, who want to invite Jesus Christ, to be their Savior. Just pray via your Holy Spirit, you'll lead them in this prayer. God, I am a sinner. And I'm in trouble without you. I cannot live this life or accomplish what you require on my own. Jesus, I need you. Please come into my life. Please forgive me of my sins. And through the power of your death, give me new life. I ask for your help and your presence today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of this journey with you. Thank you. Amen. And for those of you who have grown distant, I just invite you now to pray with me. Father, forgive me. Forgive us for believing the lies, for being proud, for pulling away for not trusting you in spite of the difficulties that we have faced I need you I want your love fresh again in my heart and in my life I pray that you could give me a new spirit and a refreshing spirit like I used to have when you and I first came together as a follower and as a Christian. Thank you for renewing and restoring me. In Jesus' name.